our text this morning, which is Joshua 24, verses 11 through 15. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Joshua 24, starting with verse 11. And then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, also the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gibusites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. But I declared unto your but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you to drive them out. From before you also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow, I have given you the land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves from which you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods of your fathers that you served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt, Serve the Lord. And if it seems good to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Ammonites in which land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, that is blessing this morning as our pastor brings us the word. story of Joshua, and last time we um, saw the fall of Jericho and the um, defeat at the village of Ai because someone had taken of the accursed thing. Now what things were accursed? Jericho. Perhaps you've had some time to think about the uh, question of accursed things. Things that God wants his people to be dead to. In Jericho, what were the accursed things? The things of rebellion, the things of unbelief, the things of sin. What were they? Well, were they Suppose the idols of the people in Jericho, would they be accursed? Um, what about other artwork? You know, idols were a type of artwork, really just artwork. They went beyond that because people did bow down and worship them. There were places of worship too, weren't there? Would they be accursed things? How about other kinds of like paintings and things, uh, even decorative things in the 
uh, like a beautiful vase or something, was that accursed, an accursed thing in Jericho? Was, well, was the, was the money accursed? Was the, was the jewelry, was the jewelry, jewelry of the people, was that accursed? And what about the clothing? What about their cars? I mean, their chariots. They were cursed too. Right? What about the horses? Maybe the horses. No, they were accursed. And the cows and the goats and the chickens. And um, they were all, it was all accursed things. God wanted the people to be dead to all of those things. Because all of it was part of the culture of rebellion against the God of Israel. And loyalty to false gods. Gods of deception and death. Even requiring child sacrifices. In terrible ways. Which I won't go into. And have you thought, what does God want his people today to be dead to in the culture that surrounds us? Could there be anything? Could there be a lot of things? So many things. We look at the media. So much that doesn't fit in with God's instructions to us. Recreation, some of it leads to compromise with God's principles. In finances, there are questions of honesty, integrity, uh, of debt, of partnerships with unbelievers, with friendships. There are influences to follow the ways of the world, the ways of selfishness or self-centeredness. And then there's work. What about the quality of our work? What about the integrity, the balance of work and other parts of life? And even in the family, there can be spirits of unforgiveness, of disrespect, of unlo being unloving. All these things that, some of them become things that easily beset us, as the Bible says. Things that we easily get caught up with. How can we overcome these evils or, thi or things that ensnare us? Well, Revelation 3.21 has a beautiful promise for us. Revelation 3, verse 21. Is our microphone working okay? Okay. I don't know if I have it kinked or anything. I want to make sure it's all working well. So in Revelation 3.21, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Soul. Here Jesus talks about overcoming as he overcame. The question comes, how did Jesus overcome? How did he do it? And how does that tie in with Joshua? We'll see that in a bit. Well, Jesus had to overcome a lot of things, but one of the big ones was a direct confrontation with the devil. Where did that happen? In the wilderness. And in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us about it. 
So let's go to Matthew chapter 4. It's interesting, Joshua was out in the wilderness for 40 years, wasn't he? How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. A day for a year. Kind of interesting. But here we go to uh, Matthew chapter 4. And uh, I'll let you chew on the day for a year at home. But we're not going to get into that this morning. We're going to look at something else here in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Find the right spot. Here we go. Uh, we'll start with verse 3. It says, Now when the tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Then, uh, but, or but, he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Jesus talked about living not by bread, physical bread alone, but by what? By the word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, which we found here in the inspired word of God. And Jesus uh, quotes from the scriptures. Each place he says, it is written. And so he was using the Bible as a, the basis of his living now, was he reading it just for items of instruction or commandments to be kept? Or was there more to it than that? When he talked to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You might say you think that if you eat them, you will live. And Jesus said, we've got to live by not regular bread, but by this spiritual bread we find in the word. But he, he continued to the Pharisees, he says, but you won't come to me that I would give you life. The scriptures testify of me. So he said, you're missing the, the, the real uh, center, the core of things, if you're reading the Bible just as an instruction book, it needs to be a story book. It needs to tell about God. And you eat of it by cherishing everything about me. And that's, you suppose Jesus did that, cherishing everything that he was learning about the Father. Yeah. He would be following his own teaching, wouldn't he? So he used the word of God to know God and then as a basis for prayer to God. You suppose during those nights of prayer that he referred back to things that he had read in the scriptures? There's promises that could be, that he could claim for the people that he was serving. Um, remember how in the synagogue when he went... <coughs> Excuse me, when he was just beginning his ministry and he was called up to read in the synagogue and he read from Isaiah. And remember what he read about? He said that God has, the Spirit has sent me to do something. What was it? Heal the blind. Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Set the captives free. Those kinds of being merciful and kind and loving and helpful, right? 
And so when Jesus was praying, did he know he was going to meet some blind people? And what do you suppose he would pray? Father, it's your plan that I will give sight to the blind. Father, it's your plan that when I meet lame people, they will be healed. Right? And so on and so on. And he could quote these things that were in the scriptures, that were part of God's plan, and he could ask God to fulfill them through him. Let's look at see some more about that. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We see evidence for this line of thinking. Because you may have wondered, what did Jesus pray about those early morning hours or all night hours? Well, there were a lot of people in a lot of different needs. And there were a lot of scriptures that he could claim for others. John 14, looking now at verse 10. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, what? Does the works. The Father who dwells in me does the works. Every miracle that we see in the life of Christ was the Father working to answer the prayers of Jesus for the people. Every miracle was evidence that the Father heard the prayers of Jesus. And that Jesus was in the Father's will, working out the Father's plan. They were cooperating together. And the Father was doing miracles, answering prayers every time. Every miracle was an evidence that the Father loved Jesus and loved the people. And the plan was working out just the way he wanted, and it was a good and wonderful plan. Now go to chapter 11 of John. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 11 of John. You know that story. <clears throat> Let's see. We're in chapter 11. Look at verses 41 through 42. This is the story where his friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus came to raise him up from death. And so in verse 41, let me get my right place here. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, so he's praying here, isn't he? He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now notice that. 
He said, I know that you've heard me. And how, how often? You always hear me. You see, he saw these events in his life as answers to prayer. All the way back to his baptism. Because he wanted to have evidence from heaven to confirm the evidence of scripture and the evidence of the stories of his birth that he was indeed the Messiah. Remember, when he came to earth, he didn't come with his divine knowledge of everything. That was set aside. Anything that you don't have available to you, he set aside. Because he came to live as you have to live in this world. And so he set aside his divine knowledge. He grew up as a Jewish boy in Nazareth who had to learn the scriptures from his mother and uh, meditate on things in nature and other things and see the evidences of God's love and goodness and his plan. And the Holy Spirit was helping him put the pieces together. And especially at age 12 when he went to the Passover and he saw the Passover lamb dying and the Holy Spirit was helping him put together all the, the ideas of what it meant to be the Messiah. And then between that age 12 and age 30, where was he? He was in the carpenter shop. Most of his day was spent doing what? Working. Doing manual labor. Working with wood, with people a little bit, cleaning up. And then looking for opportunities to do keep deeds of kindness in his area. And so, and of course he had to get up early, extra early, to have time for that prayer and study so that he could stay in close connection with the Father. So all through those years of labor, he's thinking, is this really the work of the Messiah? What am I really to do? How is it supposed to happen? How is it, when is it going to be? And he had some, uh, he had some evidence because the prophecy pointed to a certain year when the most holy would be in Hebrews chapter Eight, it says in a certain year, chapter 9, says in a certain year, the Most Holy would be anointed. And that was the year A.D. 27. That's the year Jesus would turn 30. Anyway, so he needed, he needed further evidence. And at his baptism, did the Father pre provide further evidence? What evidence did he provide? Yeah, the dove coming down, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. What else? A voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then also the words of the prophet, what did the prophet say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this was all the Holy Spirit inspiring things, the Father providing things to confirm 
all that Jesus had been thinking and praying about and studying about all those years. Pulling it together. Putting the stamp of heaven's approval on who he was. And then he went where? From the, from the baptism. Into the wilderness. And then Satan is saying, well, if. You see how Satan was trying to undermine the evidence that had just been provided. But Jesus, what did he do with that evidence? He cherished it. He treasured that. He wouldn't give up the evidence that he had had at his baptism. Remember, we've been studying, we've been, over the years, we've been talking about treasuring what God gives us. And that's what Jesus did. He treasured that. He wouldn't let go of it. He wouldn't let Satan steal that away from him by saying, if you are, then do this. That'll, that'll get us. That, that'll uh, prove it. No, he was holding on the evidence the Father had given now let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And verse 42. We're talking now about the death of Jesus. And in chapter 22, verse 42, we're at the part... Excuse me. Where he's in the garden before going to the cross. And his prayer there in chapter uh, 22, verse 42, it says, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, here was Jesus at a hard place. A place where his humanness did not want to continue. And it was uh, an awful thing before him. So terrible that he wanted to withdraw from it. But he said, Father, I still trust your will and your plan. And look at chapter 23, verse 46. For those familiar words, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So here he is saying that he still trusts the Father, even though it all looks so black. Here it was when he was feeling alone and betrayed and defeated and hopeless. Hopeless that anything could get better because there was no evidence for anything getting better at that point. And he still, he still held on to the evidence of what the Father had done and what the Father had said all through those years. The baptism, all the miracles, the Mount of Transfiguration, what Mary Magdalene did, all these things he was clinging to, holding on to, believing that the Father was still working for good and not for evil. Now that's not easy to do. It wasn't for Jesus. 
it was hard, and it's not for us. Now, some have been through valleys of darkness like this. Some are going through it now, perhaps. When you feel hopeless, when you feel the situation can't get any better, and why am I still having to fight this battle? Is, can God, how can God possibly work things out for good? Let's go back to Joshua chapter 24 and we're going to look at verse 15. A highlight verse in that chapter. This is at the end of a long life that Joshua's had. He's been leader for a long time. God has used him to bring the people into the promised land. To overcome a long series of battles, of enemies. And the people are now settled throughout the land just as God promised. And so he calls the people together and he's, he's challenging them. He says, now what are you going to do? There are gods back on the other side of the Jordan. They're still there. They're st people are still worshiping them. They're available. There are gods on this side of the Jordan. Our neighbors are worshiping them. What God are you going to follow? Look at verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father serve there on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you now dwell. But for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Joshua overcame all these influences of the cultures around him and even the people within the, the nation of Israel. Some were already compromising. But he said, I'm not letting go. I'm going to serve the Lord. Now how did he come to such a, make such a statement? Such an overcoming statement. Well, Jesus, Joshua did what Jesus did. Joshua relied on the reasonable evidence that God had provided and he clung to it. He cherished it. Look at verses 1 through 14. We won't read it all because Dan already read most of it to us. But if you peruse it just now looking at it, those verses, you'll see in the first several verses he's referring way back to Abraham. He says, God, you're the one who chose Abraham. It was the Lord who did that. And then he chose Isaac and then Jacob. And then down into Egypt, he was watching over things there until the time when he brought us up out of Egypt and he did all kinds of miracles. And he took us through the Red Sea and he overcame this enemy and that enemy and that enemy. This is what God has done for us. He's saying, never forget it. Never forget what God has done with evidence he's already provided of his love and his faithfulness and how his plan is good. Now, suppose we put on our church sign out here, Doubters welcome. Questions encouraged. Could you feel comfortable with that? 
Young people. Should young people question their faith? Their faith in God, I mean. Should they take time to gather evidence for themselves or just believe what they've always been told? Every generation needs to examine it again for themselves. They need to ask the hard questions. They need to look at the story carefully and see how things add up. Otherwise, it's not their own faith, is it? And it would be easily destroyed. It has to be a fresh and living faith each one for each one of us. Now, where do we get that evidence? Where do we find the things to base our faith on? Well, it's from the, goes back to the scriptures again. Here it is. Here are the stories. Here are the things that we can go back to and look at. Is there anything else other outside of the scriptures? What about what God does in your own life? Did Joshua have God do things in his life? Did Jesus have evidence that God presented in his life? Things that he could cling to? Things he could hold on to? Definitely. And young people today can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, please work in my life. And we see him do amazing things. And we hold on to the evidence of what we see as we take the principles of the Bible, apply them, and watch God work. That adds to the evidence that's already in Scripture. What about in our parents' lives or other people's lives? We see things of God working. We hear the stories, the testimonies. That's one good thing about reading uh, good biographies of Christians and uh, of missionaries and Christian, other Christian leaders. And it gives us more evidence to cling to. God's truth is beautiful, but it's also reasonable. And it's based on evidence. Evidence evidence that also leaves room for doubts. Did you know that? God does not pile on the evidence so high that there's no room for doubts. Think about what Joshua said to the people. Did he say, Oh, there's nothing to those gods on the other side of the river. And there's nothing to these gods here. And... Uh, the only God there is possible for you to believe in is the Lord. Is that what he said? No, he said, there are gods over there that people believe in. There are gods over here that the Amorites are believing in. Choose. Didn't he say that? Choose whom you will worship. It's the same today. It's the same today. You know, the neighbors all around Israel had rejected the Lord. They thought there was evidence that their gods were superior to the God of, of Abraham and the God of the Jews. They thought it was their Baal gods that sent down the rain. They thought it was their Ashtoreth gods that were blessing their crops and their, and their uh, goats and so on, their herds. And today... Our neighbors believe that scientists are more powerful in discovering truth than Bible believers. 
They believe that the evidence says that the Bible is, is out of date. It's just a story, a myth. Choose whom you will believe. But choose carefully. Joshua and God invited people to freely make their choice. Their choice as to which evidence they were going to believe, what they were going to hold on to, what they would cherish. But Joshua also challenged the people to consider the consequences of that choice. Look at verse 16 to 20. <coughs> Excuse me. 16 to 20. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to, to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Ooh, good answer, right? Verse 19, but, you wouldn't think a but would be there. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. What? He asked them to choose, and they chose, and they chose the Lord. Good choice, but he says, you, but you cannot. You cannot serve the Lord your God. Why? What's the answer? For he is a holy God. And the implication is, and you are not. I don't know about you, but that hits home. He is a holy God. It goes on, he is a jealous God, for he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Now we have to understand that uh, God takes responsibility for things that he allows. And if the people choose to serve other gods will will god allow them to serve those other gods he will even after they already promised to serve the lord he will and after they go after these other gods what will happen good or trouble trouble it doesn't always come on quickly but it eventually comes and the book of judges tells the cycle over and over and over that's the next book of the Bible. And God warned them. He said, you're going to have harm and trouble and it's going to consume you. And so he said, please, make a choice. But you've got to consider carefully what that choice is. And so, you know, we talked to people, some, uh, some younger well, not always younger, but some people today will say, oh, you know, you Bible believers, you, uh, you're so out of touch with things. You have to realize that 
It was religion that caused most of the trouble of this world. Most of the wars and all these uh, mass killings and everything, the crusades and all that, all that religious stuff. And that's one, one of the big problems of the world. It's not a solution. Were the Crusades nice? They were horrible. Have there been other uh, Christian wars that have been horrible too? Oh, yes. So, I guess the idea, the best thing would be to turn away from Christianity to get to all together and everybody become atheists and then all the problems would be over. Is that right? I mean, that's, that's the answer. That's the solution provided. Is there any evidence that that's not the best way? Well, let's ask Lenin, who led Russia into atheism. Did that solve all their problems? Or did it lead to millions of people being killed? And how about Stalin? And how about Hitler? And we could go on and on, couldn't we? And there, see, we have to look at all the evidence, don't we? And we have to look carefully. What are the consequences? What are the consequences? That's what God's saying. Don't close yourself up into a box and not look at things. Open your mind, look at things, but look at all of it. Now, Let's see, where am I here? Oh yes, verses 21 to 27. Notice the challenge he gives to the people. The people said to Joshua, No, no, but we will, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. In other words, we're doing this freely. We're not being forced into it. We're freely choosing God. We, we're doing it. Verse 23. Now therefore, he said, put away from the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord your God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. Look at that. The stone could both hear and be a witness. Ever hear anything about the stones crying out? Kind of gives a new meaning to that, doesn't it? But he says, you know, you are, you're not being forced into this. You have a choice. You're freely choosing it. And if you're choosing the Lord, then you're a witness against yourself if you go back on that. 
reminds me of what the New Testament says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus deserves to be the king forever and that anyone who is lost has done it to themselves. Freedom is a very costly thing. A very beautiful thing. And one with great responsibility. Joshua overcame as Jesus overcame by choosing the right evidence and cherishing it. He freely chose to follow with admiration and love and obedience God in all his ways. What about you and me? How shall we overcome? In the same way? Well, there's no other way. There is no other way. Because choosing the the evidence that God has provided, loving and, and cherishing that evidence of who he is and what he's like is the way into close fellowship with the Savior. And since sin is choosing to be separate from God, close fellowship with the Savior is the antidote of sin. It's the way of overcoming. So, what evidence have you examined? Have you searched the scriptures or do you continue to do so? Are you looking at creation and history and the works of the gospel in the world and the changes that you see in people's lives as they come to the Savior? It's interesting, scientists are looking at Mount St. Helens and finding all kinds of new things they never learned before about erosion and petrification and regrowth and so many things that uh, support more of what the Bible says than what science has said. Are you looking looking for more evidence to cherish and to love and to enjoy? And what has he done for you in your life and in your family's life? And have you seen answers to prayer? And are you cherishing those things? And so examine, choose, cherish, and enjoy the Lord our God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great example of Joshua and the even greater example of Jesus in overcoming the things of this world. Continue to draw us with your love and show us the beautiful evidence of your love and the story of your character and your salvation, that we may be completely certain that your ways always are the ways of real life and never for evil, but always for good, that we can trust you in every hour. And we thank you for this. You are the Savior. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to our closing hymn, number 469, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. We'll stand as we sing it together. Number 469.
our benediction is taken from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.